91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on January 29th, 2017, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Jonathan joins me to read the tea leaves from the first week of the Trump White House and to discuss the emerging rolling protest actions against the administration. That's all coming up in just a moment. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. It's Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. So we were off last week. I hope folks, if they had not had a chance the previous week to listen to the episode on Saudi Arabia that I did with Felix Biederman, had a chance to listen to that. If you have not yet, you can get that on iTunes. You can go to arsenalfordemocracy.com. Definitely check that out. That's been getting like rave reviews from our listeners and people who had not listened to the show previously. It's sort of interesting because he and I were talking specifically about Saudi Arabia and some of the crises that that have been generated from from Saudi Arabia's actions and, you know, questionable U.S. foreign policy decisions in the Middle East. Um, We're recording this episode on Sunday, January 29th, uh, and we're in the middle of this weekend of sort of semi-spontaneous actions in response to the uh, various executive orders that were coming down from the Trump White House. Um, about the, uh, which I guess that's new too, since the last episode is mm-hmm. that there is a Trump white house now yeah. that, that inauguration sure did happen. Yes. Um, and though there were some bans on, uh, refugees, but also green card holders, permanent mm-hmm. legal, permanent residents of the United States, uh, coming from certain countries in the middle East, but not all countries in the middle East, very yeah. notably, uh, Saudi Arabia was left off that list. Not surprising. There were some, I would call them misguided analyses floating around, including from major publications saying that the countries that weren't on the list were countries where Trump had business ties. That is not why. This list is the list that any Republican would have basically come up with, I think. It's kind of, you can tell based on countries where the U.S. actually has a like formal relationship with in some way like that the u.s is sending weapons to egypt the u.s yes. is sending weapons to saudi arabia exactly that like that's why they're not going to like the u.s we probably send weapons to turkey i don't know exactly but uh, turkey's they're member nato, NATO yes. but they're nato so we do <laughs> um pakistan was off, uh, was not on the list correct right. and the u.s uh, does does send weapons we there sure too. do we sure do um and yeah. so it's it, 
that's a, a large driver of what are US, the U.S.'s geopolitical interests. Yeah. The countries that are on the list are countries that the U.S. is bombing, with the exception of Iran, which the U.S. hates. Yes. And that Republicans mostly want to be bombing. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, and this morning, actually, you know, very helpfully, after a, a Saturday of liberal wonks saying, excuse me, these countries actually contribute far more to terrorism, you had Ryan's Priebus go on Meet the Press and say that maybe they would consider adding <laughs> Egypt and Pakistan at a later date um you know which i don't think that's actually going to happen uh you know kind of a little bit of a dark humor joke that i made was that the problem with uh putting pakistan on a list of you know revoking these rights of legal permanent residents is that if you block the green card holding auntie of the wrong pakistani colonel there's a risk that he launches all the nukes now that's probably not actually true but at the very least that is what the people in washington think is the case and as we have talked about so many times on this show in many cases perception Perception is more is in fact yes more important than reality um and so you know but it is interesting because that concept that that Felix was talking about a ton on the episode a couple weeks ago about Saudi Arabia was the concept of the DC foreign policy blob. It's this sort mm-hmm. of just bipartisan, you know, it's Republicans, it's Democrats, they all basically align on foreign policy interests, particularly regarding the Middle East. There's obviously a support for Israel, but there's also more importantly, perhaps even, uh, you know, automatic support for Turkey, Egypt, Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia, and United Arab Emirates. Um, and you know, the, the, the interesting question here is this seems to have been a decision that was made by like Steve Bannon, the white house chief strategist Mm -hmm. who is very sort of far right and was definitely the one trying to like target Muslims in particular. Mm -hmm. Obviously they didn't get all the countries that they wanted on the list. Um, you know, but, but you had Rudy Giuliani going on and saying, oh, they asked me how we can do the Muslim ban legally. Well, okay, so we know what their intent was. Yeah. The author's intent on these executive orders was to try to ban as many uh, Muslims as possible from reentering the country. And there were something like maybe 500,000 affected people. What do you see, though? Uh, what, what's the signals you're picking up in terms of the tensions within the White House that may or may not exist? Obviously, it's a little hard for us to know what's going on in there. But it does seem a little odd that Steve Bannon was like, okay, these countries are on the list but we're still going to adhere to the dc blob mm-hmm. logic and you know that i think goes back a little bit as well to that concept of draining the swamp that you should not be listening to them if you're actually there to drain the swamp that's kind of a you know that's a heated term to be throwing around because it's got a lot of world war ii related <laughs> uh uh you know connotations uh, certainly um but i think it is worth raising that question um, and it is kind of an awkward position for us to be in as well, because as will be very clear, if you go back and listen to that episode with me and Felix, I'm in the anti-blob camp. So I'm not like saying, oh, I think Steve Bannon would have been a hero if he'd gone against them. But the question is, why didn't he? And and what what does this say about sort of the balance of power? Although maybe what he got was the ability to keep the banning the green card, the people with green cards as in terms of like he if he wasn't able to ban everybody from the countries because that was apparently coming out of the White House of him and um Miller, the one person connected to Jeff Sessions. But don't it, remember, sorry. But it, it was coming out of, it was coming out of Bannon the that part which DHS I think in their original writing about how it would be implemented d- excluded green card holders from it, but the White House overrode that and that was primarily pushed by Bannon. The there was also the controversial development over the weekend 
uh, regarding Bannon being put on the National Security Council, I think. Yeah, replacing the I chief I don't know choices. what the deal is with that. I don't know how if you're any have any more familiarity than I do. That seems weird. Yeah, because it's it's not because they they pushed out the G, the chief joints of, the joint chiefs of staff. Sorry. Uh, well, this is the peace candidate maneuver. We've all been yeah, waiting we've, for. We've yeah, we've all been we've all been waiting for uh, Trump, who of course was going to be was going to prevent World War Three. Uh, he he takes out the, he places the military with the white nationalist, yeah. Uh, which, frankly, like it's pick your poison. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that, I mean, look, that was an interesting thing. You had <laughs> one of these ex CIA people, and you know, in addition to Evan McMullen being an ex CIA person complaining about all this stuff, uh, you had some other person whose name I don't even remember because yeah. they're such a non-entity, and they were like, I was in you know in combat with the CIA for ten years. And I didn't work, you know, do all that dangerous work uh, for this to see my country's national security apparatus be turned over to a white nationalist. And it was just like, like but the CIA where have you been yeah, all these years? The CIA is most famous for helping light skinned Spanish speaking guys <laughs> from Central and Latin uh, Central and South America to uh, overthrow or quell, you know, dark skinned and- insurgencies and socialist governments yep. that were seeking land reform funny and, how that yeah, happens you know and and you can go back to past episodes we've talked a lot about the rios mont trial in guatemala mm-hmm. and basically that like that was a guy who was being armed by the reagan administration to just commit mass murder against indigenous people in guatemala not great like and so the idea that the cia you know i don't know and uh you know i want to i want to stress uh, somebody i think it was matt christman made like a good point today on twitter which was like okay if someone says this is not who we are your response should not automatically be no we're monster people we've always been so bad your response should be we, we should, should be not better. we should be better than this yeah, yeah th- th- i agree that th- we don't th- want to th- be this th- there's, there's a value for an aspirational concept that it's not it's not accurate to say that this is not america in many ways it, that all of the awful things have been american trump is basically kind of an amalgamation of all of the worst parts of american history uh kind of fueled into one part and like I, I think i described him before is that in many ways he's like this if you were to com- create a stereotype of how some other countries view the u.s it would be like donald trump the rich racist bully who throws around his money to get whatever he wants mm. but the problem is that there still is something to say that like that you can be better than this, even if that there are, that there are better that there are good parts of the U.S. history that are working mainly to counter the bad parts. So it's in terms of that, and the U.S. has always been a very aspirational place of like setting goals that that are like, never lived up to. This is what the U.S. should be. Yeah, and you can yeah. Well, but but maybe there's a balancing act there to be. Like, well, it's never been, been that. It's yeah, like okay, so you, well, you, you, you I think th- we're all like the people who are saying this is not who we are. Or whatever they're. Like, let's just embrace, yeah. like, bring them into the fold on, like, yeah. we need to be better. It's, it's you know? easy point to make where you say that the U.S., that, that, like, the idea, in theory, not actually embodied by people behind it, that they're very good parts of the idea of kind of, uh, in terms of, in various parts of, like, how the country sees itself. And the problem is that that's never really been borne out by reality at the time. And that the goal is to actually strive to more, 
to bring out the best in ideals that exist and not have a constant tension between this idealization of the country and what it actually does. Yes. Uh, but with all that being said, no need to like whitewash what the CIA has done. Like that's exactly. not, that's not a component in that balancing that's, that's, act. Exactly. That, 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 that balancing act needs to take place with, you need to actually acknowledge history. You need to acknowledge that the U S has done a lot of things that are far from perfect. And that you need to say that this, that the U S is a very flawed country. The U S has the potential to do very good, many good things. It has done good things. It has done bad things. And you need to help do more of the good things and fewer of the bad things. And that's a constant struggle. Now, I mentioned that Reince Priebus, the White House chief of staff and former Republican National Committee chairman and former Wisconsin Republican chairman, had uh, gone on Meet the Press earlier today as we're recording this on Sunday and had been talking about, you know, defending these these controversial executive orders uh, regarding these bans on, you know, refugees and green card holders from various countries. Um I, I am sort of like I'm a little surprised that some of this stuff was getting through with him as as chief of staff. But um, but on the other hand, I guess I'm not that surprised. Uh, something that I was thinking about late last night um, after a lot of this stuff had developed was that I feel like the people in so there's this cadre that I talk a lot about. And I actually finally I think I've alluded to this before, but I finally have the article out at the globalist.com. The the title of that was America's New Regime, Wisconsin, not Trump or Putin, mm-hmm. um, basically saying the the power in the frozen north that's pulling the strings behind the Trump administration is not the Russians. <laughs> it's the Wisconsin Republicans. And I talk about, uh, you know, Ryan's Priebus and I talk about Paul Ryan and I talk about Scott Walker mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, there's an additional section on Ron Johnson, but he doesn't quite fit into that model as well. But these, uh, these guys ranging in age, you know, uh, mm-hmm. over a period of late sixties to late seventies, you get these Gen X Republicans. The years they were born, not their actual age. Right, right, right. Uh, they, they, yes, I, that's, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all, they're all, you know, they're, as I call them young adjacent, right? They're, they're no, <laughs> they're no longer young, but they're certainly like younger than the baby boomers. They're young for a politician. That's probably accurate, yeah. Um, but the key thing with them as Republicans is that they came of age, like, in a political awareness standpoint uh, in the Reagan years, yeah. um, especially the early Reagan years. And uh, what I what I referred to them last night is I said they're basically Mark II Reaganites, which is worse than Mark I because they're, they're not – like, the Reaganites were bad, but they were also – the first wave of this like group of people. And so they were sometimes making compromises, especially because they had a democratic they had to, Congress. Yeah. yeah. So they're bounded. Um, you know, and they had still a much more diverse coalition of Republicans that they had to deal with. So even though they were very conservative, sometimes they had to make compromises with the more liberal and moderate wings that were still somewhat present in the Republican party. But what you have now is these people who came of age like idolizing a version of Reagan that never really existed, mm-hmm. which again, to be crystal clear, is not to say that Reagan was good. He was very bad. He was terrible, um, but there could be limit. But he was bounded in his terribleness right. in some ways. But they are they are cosplaying as a version of Reagan. Like yeah. it is the the version that they have created in their minds and their collective memory and their retellings it's, of the it, Reagan years. And in a way it could be in the sense of if Reagan weren't bound like in the way that like what Reagan might himself have wanted to do if he didn't sure. have those fundamental constraints yes. of having to deal with a democratic 
Democratic legislature. Yeah. Um, and so my so thought... So it's the idea of Reagan rather than the person. Right. My thought on this, though, is that if you're cosplaying as, like, unbounded Reagan Mark II or, like, the Reaganites, the people around him in the administration, the idea that the normal D.C. Republican, people who've been staffing up Republicans at various levels, um, that they're going to be a counterbalance to someone like Steve Bannon or whatever, like... Maybe on certain specific things they will, but my my guess is that they've basically been drafting a lot of these executive orders and bills and regulations and things like that, almost like a fantasy football team lineup. Yeah. In the they never thought they were gonna even get you know get catch power. this car. Yeah. And they now have lined up all the dominoes where they're basically going to have a stacked Supreme Court. They're going to have a lot of lower court positions in their favor. They're going to have total control of all these agencies in the cabinet and everything. Something like 4,000 political appointees that aren't even just civil service people. And they have control of both chambers of Congress. That's they are just going to go hog wild on this agenda. And I don't think that a lot of these extreme things that are being attributed to Trump personally or to Bannon personally or to the Trump family people and Jared Kushner or whatever. I don't think that's coming from them. I think it's coming from these ultra hardline people associated with this clique of Gen X Republicans. And I think that they may present a moderate face. I mean, that's Paul Ryan's entire deal is presenting a totally pleasant, moderate Midwestern face on this horrifying agenda of, you know, impoverishing people, essentially. You don't need to have crazy eyes to be to be a radical Republican. Right, and and you don't need to look like Steve Bannon looks. Like <laughs> both he and Trump are sort of visual you... embodiments of a certain thing, and there's these other guys who are just not. They they look more presentable. You don't, yeah. You don't need to look like you're spending all of your time on Stormfront in your parents' basement to actually have the same politics. That's true. Uh, well, yeah, it's basically one of the kind of the markings of people like Paul Ryan is to do genteel racism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is the Republican. It, it's the dog whistle racism. When I mean, you really agree with the same things, you hate the same people, but you need to present it in a made for television way. That's that that's made to the, to the suburbanites who, who don't really see, don't see themselves as racists. Yeah. Racists are the ones who say the N word, but not, not people who like, make sure that no black people can ever live within like 10 miles of them. It's the fascinating thing back in the election when there was a desire to get that tape that apparently existed of Trump saying, uh, of saying the N-word on The Apprentice as though we didn't know he was a racist. It was impossible to formally call Trump a racist, but only when we have that video is it incontrovertible proof like yeah, that yeah. Trump actually hates black people. Yeah, can't find no. the can't find the N word tape. Trump not a racist, this. but he did run you know advertisements and maintain decades later a policy position that the Central Park Five should have been executed, <laughs> even though they were a bunch of black kids who were framed for a assault that they didn't commit, and it was later proven with like DNA evidence that they didn't commit it, and he, and he still wants them executed. Yeah. And it's like no, but he didn't say it on tape. He didn't so say that we, the, we the don't word, know. So yeah, he he he. he he, helped, he fueled the birther campaign against Obama, but but like we, we just don't know if the guy's racist or not. The other the other thing that's really interesting. So Paul Ryan does eyes version of this weird Ayn Rand libertarianism stuff that's in, in you know infiltrated the Republican Party. Definitely doing the Reagan revolution realized after yeah. fits and starts or whatever. Uh, Ryan's Priebus though is an interesting figure because I think that a lot of Democrats and I would put myself in this camp until fairly recently 
really like, A, he has kind of an unusual name that is easy to, you know, make jokes about or whatever. He also just has this weird personality that makes him hard to take seriously, except that when I was actually reading up, he was very widely regarded as like a highly effective leader of the Wisconsin Republican Party. And that was one reason that he became the national chair. Um, you know, he had basically like you had in 2010, you had states where the Republicans did really well with the Tea Party mm -hmm. stuff. And then you had states like Delaware, for example, where I was based, where they just way overreached. Yeah. They picked people who were just completely Nevada. unelectable. Nevada was a great example of like, yeah, that it was a close race. But like, wow, they could have picked such a better candidate and probably knocked out Harry yeah. Reid. And so there were these states where the where the Tea Party people like just went way overboard and overplayed their hand. And then there were the states where it went well. Wisconsin was an example where so they won the governorship, they won control of the legislature, and apparently instrumental in that was Reince Priebus basically being this totally behind the scenes operator guy who could pull together, you know, the Catholic Republicans and mm -hmm. the Lutheran Republicans and the Tea Party Republicans and the business Republicans and like all these different factions that were centrifugally like ripping the party apart in a lot of places. And he brought them together. No, we're going to get through this together and we're going to defeat, you know, Russ Feingold and we're going to win mm -hmm. the governorship. And, we're gonna, and they did all those things. That was a clean sweep in Wisconsin. And, you know, so other areas, it didn't work out. So then they bring him in at the national level. And what you end up seeing in 2012 and especially in 2014 is places where candidates who were basically as bad as the 2010 candidates yeah. who had overplayed their hand start getting elected in some of these places again. And part of this issue was like, he brought the Republican National Committee out of debt. He like overhauled the digital strategy, like all these different things. Like they started getting better about data usage, things like that. And most importantly, he was, again, playing that behind the scenes role, making sure that everyone was being friends with everyone and getting along, or at least finding a way for them to get along if they weren't going to be friends, right? And he would constantly, harmony. yeah, he would constantly be looping in like congressional Republicans with the, what the RNC strategy was and coordinating between the you know, RNC and the Republican Senate committee and the Republican House campaign committee, things like that. And, and yet he was still... Up to the moment that he's getting picked as White House Chief of Staff, he's still getting mocked. And again, I'm putting myself in that category because I remember one of the things I tweeted right before the November election was the silliest part about this sort of rumored Trump transition kind of nucleus would, if Trump wins, is that Reince Priebus, of all people, would somehow become the White House Chief of Staff, and that's laughable. After the election, I was like, wait, why is he getting picked? Well, it turns out that the thing that he did in the 2016 cycle was when you had all these Republicans being like, well, I can't go after Trump exactly because he's too popular, but I also like really personally hate him, and he has attacked all my family members and stuff like that. Reince Priebus was one of the people who got them to sign that pledge that yeah. basically took them all down, and mm -hmm. they thought that was going to take out Trump. Yeah. Um, but he gets Trump to sign that, which no one else probably could have done, yeah. and basically comes up with a way of patching up all the differences mm -hmm. between almost all these candidates, which was important when you had like 20 of them running, because you needed them all to be on the same page and not going rogue and doing weird Ted Cruz speeches at the convention where they're like refusing to endorse. I mean, that backfired on Although Cruz. Although he can't really name the policy. Oh, well, no, it one policy matter. that yeah. Ted Cruz would probably disagree with is Trump's disagreement with the TPP, but that's about... Yeah, it's a very limited point of disagreement. Um, but in any case, you know, I think that, that he seems to be sort of this figure that was underestimated 
or at least I underestimate him. I don't want to project it on other people, but I think it was relatively widespread that people were like making fun of Ryan's previous. But then now, like maybe I've overcorrected and like played him into this mastermind position mm-hmm. that really he isn't. Maybe he's maybe he really is just kind of a liaison to the congressional Republicans, which is an important role. But um, you know, maybe he's not the one who's like because there have been some White House chief of staffs. Anything that gets to the president has to go through him. I think it's pretty clear that that is not the case with Donald Trump. I think there's a lot of weirdos that have his ear and ways of communicating with him that are not going routing through the chief of staff. He doesn't remind me of the the function Rom served. Uh, Yeah, because Rahm Emanuel was a real like traffic cop, right? Yeah, and and like he was the one trying trying to steer like what policy gets done to kill things that he didn't want, and. It doesn't. He doesn't strike me that Priebus has has that same stature in Trump world. Yeah, um, I, I do. You know, I would suggest though, like people definitely please go check out that article that I put up at the Globalist. Um, again, that's America's new regime, Wisconsin, not Trump or Putin. I'm just. I do. I also like. I you know, it's kind of a joking premise there, but like, I am frustrated that people are focusing so much on like basically saying that somehow Putin has leverage or is pulling strings or whatever when there are these perfectly bad baddies within our own state and more importantly we lost wisconsin by about twenty-two thousand votes or something like that um it's you know it's this upper midwestern rust belt it's like emblematic of a lot of things that went wrong um it's another situation too where you know scott walker is someone that i talk about in the article as well uh, and he's now the head of the Republican Governors Association. Like that's another like position of power that he mm-hmm. took right after the November elections. And so you've got these like four guys who all know each other pretty mm-hmm. well and have worked together very effectively. That because that was a lot of people were like, oh maybe the Trump stuff won't be so bad because there'll be too many personality clashes or whatever. And well, they managed to tee up pretty quickly the trifecta or quadrangle of people that were needed to work together very efficiently some of these guys literally are college roommates of each other or their staff members Mm -hmm. were college room you know they have all sorts of like affiliations to each other they know each other very well they're all from wisconsin that's that should not be overlooked i think that's a very dangerous power Mm -hmm. center there and the democrats nationally really dropped the ball in 2011 they did not provide the support my understanding i don't know if this is true but my understanding is that joe biden even wanted to go out to wisconsin to help with the uh the strikes and everything mm-hmm. and the senate walkout and show solidarity and the white house was like no i you know and the consequent there were a lot of missteps that were made a lot of people made, made mistakes from the democratic side on that but the result was that you ended up with not only not stopping the attacks in wisconsin but solidifying Republican power. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the point where the difference was so small that any factor could have changed yeah. it. Just having slightly better union strength, mm-hmm. having slightly fewer disenfranchisements by strict voter ID of students mm-hmm. and you know black youth in Milwaukee. A- any sort of little factor, if the Democrats had not done what they did in 2011 and 2012 could have potentially changed the situation in Wisconsin. I think that's like worth checking into. I also think like the agenda items that they push through short of, I find it a little hard to believe they're going to roll back gay marriage nationally, but you never know. Um, They, you know, other than that, Mm -hmm. the agenda that they passed in Wisconsin is very transferable to the national Mm -hmm. level, you know, capping the ability of cities to pass certain things. I think Mm -hmm. is one thing they did. We talked about that on previous episodes, um, passing uh, anti-union right-to-work legislation, breaking the public employee union specifically, um, 
the various uh, tax proposals, I think, that they did as well. Um, any of these things and a whole bunch of other things, some of which I mentioned there, those get brought very easily to the national level. And Ron Johnson in the Senate is talking about how they're going to do civil service reform, which is code for union breaking at the federal level. This is an agenda that I think they are prepared to ram through. But as Jonathan and I were talking before we started recording, it is a little surprising that they haven't moved as fast as we were expecting on some of these things. Um, it seems like Congress is maybe just a little too divided internally, not not on the fault line that people expected of pro or anti-Trump. They seem mostly pro-Trump. The question is just like internally, they ha they're they all having some sort of a purity off contest of who is the most Ayn Randian or who is the most evangelical about different things. And in part, I think it has to do with the fact that it's very, e that they all hate the Affordable Care Act and it's very easy for them to all agree on that point. But then once you get to the point of then having to offer an alternative, it, it reveals a lot of internal jockeying because then it's, it's a governing is more difficult. It's much more easier to talk about repealing something than it is to talk about offering something in its place. And that's why I kind of thought it was surprising that they haven't actually formally, formally passed that first budget that they started earlier this year because it has to go to reconciliation. And as far as I can tell, that hasn't happened yet. The Senate's been busy. That, that's one part of it. But, but that, 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 that's not the entire story. All right, we're going to go to a quick break right now from arsenalfordemocracy.com and WVUD. When we return, though, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the protests which Jonathan and I have been going to and that have been happening all around the country that are in response to these executive orders that have been coming down on Friday and Saturday. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the broader implications, uh, particularly in light of the fact that there were also protests and demonstrations in the weeks preceding. So, as I said, we'll be right back in just a moment. Stick around. <laughs> You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan Cohn. We've been talking this hour about sort of the opening week or so of the Trump administration uh, and what we've been seeing from that and kind of broader lessons or predictions that we may or may not be able to draw from that, or at least the very least things to keep an eye on. Um, one of the things that... Uh, has certainly been drawing a lot of attention is the scale of the sort of public street response mm -hmm. uh, on a lot of this. Now, some of it was well planned in advance, right? The, the Women's March um, was planned, you know, basically since right after the November election. That was happening, you know, in all, all these different cities all over the country and all over the world. Uh, and, and that took a lot of planning and still exceeded their expectations, mm -hmm. which I think should be noted that it was, mm -hmm. you know, dramatically outsized of even what they were expecting. Um, and I also found that interesting because I think that it was not necessarily clear, like what it was going to be about per se. And certainly some people involved with organizing had a specific idea. Um, and you had people who were like mostly focused on Hillary or whatever, but you also had a lot of people, especially younger people who were just like, well, I'm not really interested in that focus. I want to talk about some of these bigger picture things like the need to have an inclusive feminism mm -hmm. that is multiracial and things like that. Um, and really taking this this opportunity and making it their own. I think a lot of people are starting to to feel that way. Is like, well, I don't want to necessarily, like, I feel like a lot of the politicians led us into this, you know, situation where we're all backed into a corner. So I'm not like psyched about them. But I'm going to go there and talk about the stuff that's important to me. I'm going to raise attention on the issues that are important to me. I'm going to like let people know about organizations that exist that they may not be aware of. That's been my sense of it so far. I don't know well, what Well, there's also are. an important way that in any, in any rally protest that the crowd is more important than the speakers. That's true. 
That's true. That it's because at the end of the day, you'll have some speakers and sometimes they're great and sometimes they're somewhat milk toast. But it's about energizing the people, getting the people there energized and mobilized to continue to do stuff afterwards. So that's kind of a lot of the, if the connections that you make at such events can be valuable or even the ideas that you would be inspired like to kind of take action with from that rather than just the, the, the formalist, like from, from the perspective of the stage. Well, you know, the other interesting thing too, is I think, so setting aside the women's March, because again, that had a higher level of sort of institutionalized planning and everything. Um, and obviously like the ACA stuff was mostly affiliated with the Senate Democrats. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff that we've been seeing in response to like the executive orders and things like that have definitely been mostly planned by more radical organizations. And we're not talking like black block people who were breaking mm-hmm. windows or whatever in DC. That's a whole separate issue um, and a, a whole separate debate essentially. Um, but the interesting thing I think for me has been everyone in my experience anyway, has been a little hesitant to be like at the event signing up for things. Cause you don't know who you're giving your information to. And you don't know if you're going to end up like on a watch list or something yeah. if you sign the wrong thing. But I will say that again, setting aside those more formalized events, if you're Posting on social media after the fact, yeah, I went to this thing or while you're at it or something, you're posting a photo. People who either also went and maybe you didn't see them because they're like, mm-hmm. I can't go find you in the crowds because they're too crazy yeah. or whatever. Um, or people who weren't able to go, um, which again, that's important to remember. Some people can't, you know, they mm-hmm. either have family obligations, uh, small children or something, or they are disabled and can't attend these type of things. Um, and we certainly need to get better about figuring out ways of including visually impaired people and hearing mm-hmm. impaired people and things like that. And obviously a uh, wheelchair disability access type issues. When you, when you're saying like, oh, I was at that event, even if you didn't actually sign up for anything at the event or get involved with a specific act call to action or something, you are signaling to other people. Yeah, I am, I am at this point too, where I'm willing to go to this type of event. And I think that can be useful for building connections. We've been lucky to see how many Democratic politicians have actually showed up this weekend Mm -hmm. at a lot of these events, um, because I think a lot of people were really not having high expectations for them to even Mm -hmm. show their support for a lot of it. Um, But like, you know, even even at the local level, like a city councilor or a state rep Mm -hmm. or something, if they show up, they didn't have to show up and it's not like they get special points for showing up. Mm -hmm. But what that does signal is like, okay, that person's with us. They're not Mm -hmm. going to just completely go along with all of this or try to preserve their career Mm -hmm. by staying under the radar and that kind of thing. Um, There's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of politicians even here in Massachusetts who are in safe districts and they just don't care enough to show up to any of these things. Um, And I think like, that's how you can really gauge a lot of this. And I think, you know, Going ahead, assuming that we don't have a worst case scenario where, you know, Jeff Sessions suspends democracy or whatever, you know, in 2022 or something, you're going to have situations where three or four people are competing in Democratic primaries and saying, no, I'm the most progressive. I'm the most progressive. And we're going to be able to go back and look and say, well, did you show up at the at these these protests when it was maybe risky to show up or, or politically a little dicey and not everyone did? Some of those people are not going to have showed up. Some yeah. of them will have. And I think that's going to be an important distinguishing factor. And and I don't think, you know, aside from, you know, literal inability to go to one of these events, I don't think there's a lot of excuse if you're someone who's thinking about going into politics or yeah. something to not be going to these because I do think they're, they have value and important, but more importantly, uh, everyone's bringing their kids and their spouses. Like this, these are not like yeah. high tension, hostile events or whatever. And I think that was the other thing too with the Women's March is there was a weird discussion around that surrounding how the police didn't basically start cracking skulls. And 
the reason for that was that the there was a politically untouchable faction that was marching in those, <laughs> um, which is to say white affluent suburban women. Yeah. You do not start breaking up those protests because then you are all fired, yeah. basically. Um, and that's a really messed up situation. It's not like it's not like that. You know, Black Lives Matter protests or you know, no Dakota Access Pipeline protests were somehow less well behaved or yeah. more deserving of these police crackdowns. But the the police are basically a lot more reticent to go after certain types of gatherings. And I think that's what we were seeing after the Women's March with these events. Where they were like, okay, that one wasn't so bad. You didn't have, you know, people getting mass pepper sprayed and stuff like mm-hmm. that or getting kettled or hit with water cannons. Some of that did happen on Inauguration Day in D.C. Yeah. And so what we need to do now is, like, get out there and actually get in the streets and mm-hmm. use ourselves in our, you know, we're talking, like, Jonathan and I are relatively low risk in a situation yeah. like that. Like, they're not that likely to go after us. So we can show up and be an extra body in that situation. Yeah, because that's, that's one thing that I would think from the perspective, the reason why, let's say, the, there wouldn't be a lot of, let's say, the police aren't break, like breaking skulls or taking action, let's say, the Women's March, even is, is the fact that if there are people there that the police view as being able to wage credible lawsuits against them, that's true. For things that they do, yeah, because that ends up being a, a, a big factor there. That if that's it's why things aren't going to ever really happen. That there's not even when you actually do have criminal activity in the suburbs, there's like they're not there's no desire to enforce things because the parent like if a kid does something wrong, the parents have the money to fight the lawsuit and get the best lawyer possible and and and, and make the police department keep spending. Yeah. So you you have that dynamic there of the people that it's actually a risk for them to go after. Yeah. Um. And and I I think like it's so tremendously important to be getting in the streets right now. And because I know there's there's some folks that I've talked to who are like I don't understand like what's the end game here? And they're not saying it in a critical way. Yeah. You know because there have been past protests where they're like I don't know what the goal of this is, so I think it's bad. This is more a situation of people sincerely asking like okay, so where is this going? Like what are we hoping to achieve here? To me, it's very clear cut and very simple. This is a rare occasion where the protest itself has utility, tremendous utility, because the entire foundation of Trump's whole deal, his whole shtick, his whole mythos that got him into office with his supporters is that he is this strong, charismatic figure of action and power, strength, all these characteristics, which if you render this country ungovernable (laughs) and you just get people in the streets embarrassing this administration, that in itself starts to crumble away that because he ran on an explicitly like proto-fascist platform at the Republican Mm -hmm. National Convention and stuff like that of saying, you know, it's terrible that we've got all these protests in the streets and, you know, they're not giving automatic deference to the police Mm -hmm. and we need to just, you know, just break up all these protests and return law and order to our streets. That was a law and order. They kept hitting that theme. And the one time that there was a moment of weakness during the entire Trump campaign was in Chicago when he got scared out of doing an event Mm -hmm. because he thought that his life was going to be in danger. And it probably wasn't, but his life was going to somehow be in danger or at the very least it was going to be embarrassingly out of control Mm -hmm. at his event. Right. And so just by getting in the streets and just by showing up at these airports, which I went to the airport, the Logan airport for the basically almost spontaneous protests, you know, there, I mean, there's the relevant 
organizing networks that have existed for a while that have yeah. to bring these things. But like it was, you know, a few hours notice, essentially mm-hmm. just showing up to that. That's going to a start influencing federal judges because they also see the news. Yeah. Right. Um, but B, it's going to really, really undercut him with his own supporters without having to go try to win over his supporters, which is a very important yeah. distinction because you get these people being like, oh, we have to win over these Trump voters or whatever. No, no, no. You just have to get them convinced that they made a stupid mistake yeah. and that he was, you know, a complete Wizard of Oz, you know, that he's a man behind the curtain and not actually the great and powerful. There's also an important an important to having kind of rallies and events is also in terms of what it does to media coverage yep. because there's a horrible tendency in a lot of networks even like your nominally liberal ones where they'll they'll just do, do all trump all the time yeah and that's that's something like cnn will do that msnbc can often do that too much and what you're doing is you're giving them something else to cover yes and they're not going to cover dis- like and that's what what an importance of any such events is having a physical embodiment of dissent because you want things to show up as contested. Yeah. So that anything that he's doing, that there's no reason for anything to be reported as contested if it's not actually being physically contested in yes. such a way. Yeah. And that's with anything things like we don't know how much sway you'd have over the of the Trump administration itself, but it's an important thing for doing stuff for the sake of the press, for that the, so that what the what what news stories are being put out there is talking about how heated things are or yeah. about how about how nothing that he's doing is sailing through easily. Also, I may have missed it, but in the United Kingdom after Brexit last year, I don't remember seeing this level of spontaneous demonstrations in support of immigrant rights and things like that. There may have been some events, but, and, and so I don't want to, I'm a little hesitant to say that. I do think that it's very important, especially after the, sort of the, the, what we saw in the aftermath of November. I think it's critical to show people that even if everyone around them agrees with Trump or whatever, that there is actually mm-hmm. a lot of people who don't agree in this country yeah. because, you know, they keep circulating this map that shows which counties voted Democratic yeah. versus Republican, which of course doesn't take into account you know, population and factor. That's very comforting to a lot of them, I think, to think, yeah, we're the real majority in this country. We're the silent majority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just illegal voting or whatever yeah. that, that changed the popular, you know, they just, they, they can push that out of their heads and they can say, oh, it's just these, you know, coastal cities or whatever, which is true. I mean, a lot of these demonstrations mm-hmm. have been these democratic, you know, power mm-hmm. centers or whatever, but, but we need to, we need to be actively signaling that no not everyone thinks that this is okay mm-hmm. and also you know in the case of the richard spencer video where you have this literal neo-nazi guy getting socked in the face not too bad but enough to you know make him cry a little bit and get embarrassed and be the guy that turned into an internet meme getting hit for being a nazi you know the the, the effect that 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 this cumulatively has is to say if you think that you're going to just be able to get away with all mm-hmm. of this, right? You're incorrect. So don't yeah. start thinking like now's the time to go setting every mosque on fire or whatever, yeah. which we did start seeing. I mean, yeah. another mosque was burned in Texas after these uh, order, new executive orders came down. And this is not like a new thing, though. But yeah. we don't want to encourage uh, any more of that. And I think uh, showing these physical responses is yeah. critical. Um, I also think, and this is the part that I think is really, really sort of inspiring about it. You look at these protests like, okay, sure, Boston, not that hard in 48 hours to turn out 15 to 20,000 people. Still very impressive. Not that hard. It's Boston. Okay. We can, you know, whatever. Logan Airport even. Not that hard to generate a big crowd. There's plenty of people around the area. Salt Lake City Airport had a protest. Oh, 
list. It had about the same number of people, as far as I could tell from the photos, as showed up at the Affordable Care Act event that they did with Martin O'Malley. That was the person that the yeah. Democrats deployed out there because they don't. I don't think they have any uh, senior ranking like federal yeah. Democrats anymore. And that you know that had like a few days notice versus this, which had uh, like one or two hours notice maybe mm -hmm. that they were just hearing that it was happening at these other airports. That that same probably faction of like really diehard lefties yeah. and liberals in Salt Lake City, they showed up, right? Yeah. And they did it spontaneously, and and it's probably a lot more risky for them mm -hmm. to do that. They're not necessarily going to get hit by the police because they're a relatively small presence, but they're gonna, you know, they're potentially jeopardizing relationships with family members or coworkers, things like that, or you know, maybe risking getting fired, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And the fact that they showed up, or that you saw protests in Dallas and Houston. Mm -hmm. Granted, these are democratic cities, more or less, within red states, but it's it's it's, it's not just these coastal cities yeah. or Chicago. Oh, you know? even in anywhere, it's going to likely be a city because cities are hubs right. for, for areas that you, like, you will gravitate to the city because it's where you have the space yes. for something and that you would want to be able to show a critical mass. Well, also, I think that it is interesting that, you know, it, I think it's a lot easier to organize a protest uh, spontaneously um in airports all over the country than in uh, some of these suburban and exurban communities where police have been shooting black people and then there yeah. are the protests there. Like people have made it eventually to those sites and the local folks have certainly protested very heroically under dangerous conditions. Um, airports, by contrast, are basically the most optimized, typically, in terms of cities spending a lot of resources to be able to get people efficiently to yeah. those sites. You had, you know, you ended up with the Port Authority and the police battling as to whether or not they were going to let people on the air train to JFK Airport. Yeah. You know, so there are these like choke point vulnerabilities to that. But it is easy to get a lot of people very quickly to an airport because they are designed to get a lot of people very quickly to airports. And so that happened to be a great location for those events. And, and, and the airport stuff as well is a good way of showing that like the, the inconveniences that result from Trump's policies. It's kind of that example of like, that's doing a lot of damage to, to, to small people but in a very heavy way. But you're, if you're inconveniencing a broader population, many of them, if they're supporting your cause, will have no problem being, with, being inconvenienced because their inconvenience pales in comparison. But it's a way of showing that like, the ability to make things not run smoothly. The fact that Trump is going to be a fascist, but no, we will not allow him to have the trains run on time. Yeah, and I have, I can't speak to other cities, but I have, just absolutely loved at all of these events how many signs have been from folks who are Jewish mm -hmm. and are saying, you know, that either they're descendants of Holocaust survivors yeah. or they're relatives of people who did not survive and saying, no, this is the same thing. Yeah. And this is phase one and we're not going to stand up for it because there has been an effort to divide the Jewish community in mm -hmm. the United States and to foster Mm -hmm. Islamophobia in those communities, and I uh, and I don't I can't you know say with certainty how how deep that has gone, but the fact that mm -hmm. a lot of people showed up with that yeah. message indicates that that there is a large contingent that that had mm -hmm. no effect on, yeah, um, and that they are not willing to just take that sort of wedge and allow their community to be divided, um, and and that's been like, and I think I think that's the other thing too. You had you have Republicans and conservatives for years abusing the language surrounding the Holocaust of mm -hmm. saying like, you know, first they came for the dork libertarians who didn't 
like the this thing and i said nothing and it's like no that's offensive stop yeah. making that comparison you know and constantly calling everyone socialist and you have glenn back doing his chalkboards about socialism and then national socialism which is nazism yeah. and therefore obama's a nazi and stuff like that like that's abusive and there was a lot of concern for many years that and this similar ties into like godwin's law type issues of like oh you know the hitler comparisons and the nazi comparisons and the holocaust comparisons it's like burned everybody out it's crying wolf no one's going to pay attention we're now in a situation that a lot of us feel is very reminiscent mm-hmm. of that um and and we're determined to smash it up now yeah. Um, you know, this is not the level of response that the Holocaust got initially in the yeah. United States. You know, there weren't, there weren't, there were maybe public demonstrations in support of going to war in favor of like Britain or whatever. But even those, I think my understanding is like, you know, you had people like Charles Lindbergh in 1940 mm-hmm. and 41 doing like filling yeah. Madison Square Garden with like anti, you know, interventionist yeah, the people. US, and that, that's actually kind of a comparison thing in the comparison also relates to, um, so in the 1930s and 1940s, the U.S. was very anti-Semitic. Yeah. And, like, the U.S. likes to kind of, in some ways, whitewash its history that, like, we were a hero and something like this. The U.S. was very late because the U.S. was very, very anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And it's important if you're wanting to prevent things from happening again is that you need to combat the prejudices that allow people to do nothing. Yeah. So in terms of combating prejudice, like, kind of combating Islamophobia, it's very that's a very important thing to do, in fact, because it's the years of stoking that up that allow things like what Trump's doing to happen in the first place. Absolutely. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I've been very heartened to see some of that messaging. Um, it's been very interesting to see who shows up at these events. Like today, for example, was a much bigger event than the airport event. So we're talking mm-hmm. about the Copley Square rally for uh, Muslim Americans and Muslim immigrants. Um, a lot of the people there are not the people that you would like visually identify as like, yeah, they're going to show up at a protest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is starting to get to a broader like consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now, it helps that it's the weekend. So a lot of those yeah. folks aren't necessarily working. But as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, not to keep harping on it, but uh, bringing the professional class to these protests is very, absolutely prevents things from, from going ha- sideways. And, and that's an important thing. Like, so it's which is not to say and to me crystal clear is not to say that like they're better, better protesters people. or something it, it's a way of it's that, that people it, who they have, are insulating the other people that they have social capital that yes. can protect other people it's in a, it's in a way it's a reflective of the political thing in general is that a goal of things on left of center is to get the middle class to do the bidding of the poor yeah because there are people who have more political capital and you want to be able to link interests so that politicians are constantly going to be able to fight for those who have – that you're getting people to defend things for right. those who have less political capital it's, than you. I mean, we, you you know, you hear people on the left talk about solidarity all the time. We're, we appear to actually be starting to see some of yeah. it materializing, some people who are not directly affected or not even, you know, tertiarily affected. Yeah. And they are kind of showing up at this stuff, and I think, and I think that's important. I think, you know, also these these have skewed very young. Yes, very, um, that, and the that has, was very yeah, much. Yeah, and that has been critical because there's been, you know, and I don't want to go too, you know, we don't have time to go into depth on this, but it's definitely been noticed by a lot of people that there were certainly some Gen X folks who have were in the trenches for decades when no one else would, mm-hmm. you know, but by and large their peers were not showing up to stuff. Yeah. Um, they were not showing up to protests. They mm-hmm. were not showing up to demonstrations. They were not even, you know, getting that involved in the nonprofit sector. And I'm not even necessarily blaming them. That's, you know, there were economic factors, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But it, but it, it was not a particularly like join up and show up generation. Um, and, you know, people have said, oh, like at DC nonprofits and stuff, you get a lot of situations where the entire staff is either baby boomers or millennials and there's no one in between. Mm-hmm. 
And for a long time, the baby boomers, the even the liberal ones, were kind of carrying things by themselves because no one was there to like mm-hmm. take over from them. Um, and and maybe we're starting to see like maybe that's why kind of these big street protests are finally able to come back. It's not because of what happened in November. Obviously, Black Lives Matter, Keystone, Dakota Access, Fight for 15, Occupy. These are the things that put the pieces into place for protests to come back in a big way and for people to feel like it wasn't a huge waste of time. The key component, though, in order for it to not be a huge waste of time is you have to be able to mass the numbers. You have to be able to get so many people to show up that, as you said, it is visually contested. It is physically contested. It is showing that people will show up and they will stop this from ha- they will get in the way. They will gum up the works and they will prevent this from happening. I think it could go farther than it has so far in terms of like gumming up the works and yeah. preventing various abuses. And we'll see if it does go in that direction. Um, but we're at a very unique opportunity yeah. uh, at this. And I think point. it's closing it, thoughts. You know, so I've been very happy to see that like the number of young people turning out as well as even seeming to be leading stuff like the people leading the chance today at various points were all young people uh, who stayed on for a much long time after the, the formal part of the. Uh, rally in Copley Square ended, and I think it's really good to see to see how many young people are the ones involved taking action because it's also it's one thing that like young people do have the ability to turn out more numbers on a on a faster basis than others. Yep. Because whether it's like when people have kids, that creates more complications for them. Young people tend to have like social networks where they can actually organize mm-hmm. on a faster basis, and that that's one thing that's and we're the biggest generation in the country now. Yeah. And we're adults, finally. Like, you know, because there was a while there where we, you know, things were starting to emerge, but still half the millennials were like under 18 or whatever. Now we're we're pretty much all past that. There's maybe a couple folks who are 17, depending on how you count it. But, you know, we're we're getting to the point now where we are all solidly adults and... you know, a lot of us are not in, it's not cushy Brooklyn lifestyle or whatever that the magazines want to portray mm-hmm. it as. Like a lot of folks are really under a lot of student debt. Mm-hmm. They're not getting paid that well. Many of them probably do work weekends. Um, and and the fact that we're still able to mobilize this mm-hmm. professional class of younger millennials, I think is going to be really key going forward because the folks that have done the tremendous, very dangerous heavy lifting in these other previous protests that I talked about, they put this into place, but they kept on getting smashed up by the police. Yeah. That is not their fault. That's the fault of the police. But if we can fix that problem by bringing in this sort of insulating yeah. protective layer around them um, and not in a hokey way, but in a very meaningful, like right. sprinkle these people throughout this crowd of 15,000 yeah, or whatever, we're in good shape and, and we're and not going to have the, this problem again. There's I also hope. there's also kind of the role of like solidarity is that you're actually showing to people who like get horrible messaging coming from the top of the country of people actually supporting them and people welcoming them, which yes. is an important thing to do. You need to you need to affirm people and their humanity. Yeah. And somebody has to stand up and say, "Well, I know there's a lot of really bad people right now, and we've done a lot of bad things in our history, as we talked about at the top of the show, but you are actually welcome here." From some of us anyway. Yeah. And and we're we're happy to have you here. Yeah. All right. Jonathan Cohn, follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Cohn. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed chatting today. And uh hopefully we'll be back to some policy stuff soon, but we wanted to kind of digest uh sort of our experiences in the past couple weeks and the first week of the uh Trump White House. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFD Radio at gmail.com. 
The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night.